Good morning. Nice. <laughs> I'm going to invite you guys to stand up with us as we worship this morning. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my turn till I met you. Oh, I was breathing, but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide.
want to read from Psalm, Psalm 70. Um, this is a Psalm of David asking God to remember him. And I think we can all relate to something in this chapter. <laughs> Please, God, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. May those who try to kill me be humiliated and be put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. Let them be horrified by their shame. For they say, aha, we've got them now. But may, may all who search you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, great is, great is the Lord, great is God. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Please hurry to my aid, O God. You are my helper and my savior. O Lord, do not delay. So whether you're, you're praising God and delighting in his glory and his greatness or whether you're needing of, of help and rescue, um, take these next few moments and uh, either delight in God or ask for rescue and know that he cares. Know that he wants to come to your aid wherever you're at today.
Everyone in this room <clears throat> has something going on, God. Uh, whether it's good, bad, ugly, beautiful, um, we all have something going on, and you know us intimately. I pray that you would meet us where we are today, God. Open our minds and our hearts to your word. Uh, help this to not just be some stereotypical Sunday morning, God, where we go through the, the moments or, or we, we look forward to lunch or whatever, God. Help us to pause to reflect, to give this time to you, and know that you care, and you are king. In Jesus' name, amen. So build my life. Contemporary worship has a lot of declarations in it, and build my life is one of those songs a lot of people love. Um, but there's a line in there that says, I live for you, we live for you. And that's not easy. <laughs> We have this phrase, would you die for me or would you take a bullet for me? And I've never liked that because it's a lot harder to live for somebody, to live for my wife, to live for my kids, to sacrifice myself and live for someone else. And we're called to do that for Christ. Once we become Christians and follow him, we give up our life and we become Christ in this world and we try to be more like him. Um, so as we make that declaration, we live for you, uh, really think about that. And no name above any other name. Jesus is the highest name. But is it always like that for me? No. Sometimes Roland comes before Jesus. Sometimes Netflix comes before Jesus. There's other names that uh, sometimes I, I say, Jesus, you're going to take a back seat on this. And I get convicted, right? So as we sing this song and we make these declarations, reflect and meditate on giving your life up for, for Jesus so that other people can know him and, and giving up your name and other names so that Jesus' name really is first in your life and it shines in this world. So remember that as we sing this song out. song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live 
to the 
Good morning, guys. I have a lot of announcements for us today because there is a lot going on. Um, so a few quick things. If you are new or visiting with us this morning, um, we're so excited to have you guys here. And we do have a gift for you guys uh, for coming. So you can come visit us at Geth Services. It's over in our One Cup Cafe area after the service. We'd love to connect, answer any questions you might have, um, and give you your gift. So um, come check that out. Um, and then a few things going on. Um, so next week is July 1st, and for it being 4th of July weekend, we've decided uh, we're going to just hang out as a church family. So we will not be meeting at the church next week. We will actually be meeting at Deep River Park, not the water park. Don't bring your swim trunks. Um, unless you want to bring water balloons to throw at people. Um, but no, we'll be meeting at the park. And so um, the church will be providing chicken. And so if you guys want to sign up to bring sides, drinks, dessert, that sort of thing, um, the signups are over in the One Cup Cafe area. There's some clipboard there. So um, check that out after the service. Um, but we'd love to see you guys there. It's going to be a lot of fun. So um, that will be next Sunday on the 1st. And then um, the town hall meeting, uh, just the quick updates on what we're doing as a church, where we've been this last year, where we're heading in the next year, is not actually going to be today anymore. It's going to be on July 23rd. Um, so put that down on your calendars. It'll be at noon at the church right after service. Um, we'll be having those updates going on that week. And then on July 30th, we're going to be having baptisms. So if you're interested in signing up for that, you can sign up on our website to get baptized. Um, and then... Last but not least, um, it is Mission Sunday, and so um, if you've been coming here for a while, you know that the last Sunday of the month is our Mission Sunday, and um, we partner with this agency called Destiny Rescue that is working to get um, children out of sex trafficking overseas, and so they go in and they rescue um, these kids, and not just rescue them, but they also work on rehabilitation, so um, providing them life and hope afterwards. Um, so it's a really awesome ministry. We've been able to already rescue a couple children this year as a church. Um, and so if you want to give to that, um, you can go the way that we normally give. Uh, you can either go online or in person. Um, in person, we should have envelopes that say missions. Um, or if they're blank envelopes, just write missions on it. <laughs> and you can put that in the black box in the back. Or if you want to give online, uh, you can go to rethinkchurch.cc um, and give that way. There's a special missions tab as well. So thank you guys who do give. Um, we're excited to see how many more kids we can rescue as a church this year. Um, it really makes a difference in those lives. So thank you guys. Um, now, uh, Chad's going to be coming up to share our Bible passage for the day. And so lean in as Mark shares the sermon this morning.
Good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Shad, and today I'll be reading from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. There we go. All right. So thank you, Shad, for reading that. I told uh, the team today in our huddle, uh, because we have a group of people that come in when you serve, you come in a little early, prep, and we rally around, pray, and all that. And I was like, hey, I'm in a brain fog, because I've been sleeping in not my bed for a long time. So Roland and I took our students down to camp, and then uh, I had ordination service, and then uh, district conference church, boring church business. How about that? Uh, for the next, like, whatever that day was. And so, here I am. And I was like, if I read, it's not going to go great. So, somebody else needs to read. So, here we are. So, um, which, by the way, like, our students, we got to join in with 1,200 other students from across the country. So, Nashville, uh, Grand Rapids area, other places in New York, and, or not New York, sorry, in Ohio and all that kind of stuff. And it was an awesome time to see 1,200 students engage and Jesus and other and each other, in ways that it, like it was really inspiring. And I've been a, I've been a pastor for 20 years now, in, involved in student ministry since 2001. And it was one of those moments of like this is a sacred moment to watch 1,200 students. Not all of them are engaged all the time at the same levels, but it was like this sweet moment just to see there's a generation that God has not forgotten about. And so. Uh, it's a great thing to just kind of see, and so we'll get to hear some of their stories later on uh, as we move forward through the week and stuff like that, um, and then you don't care about the church business stuff because it's just boring details, um, but there's that one. So they're important, but you just don't care about them right now, so uh, later on you may. So uh, so let's dive into the passage, and so let's jump right into it. So it starts off with, G- with Mark telling us that Jesus enters a house, Right? 
So this is one of those moments where we could easily just kind of read right over. Mark doesn't give us a Christmas story in his gospel, but he's reminding us time and time again the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth. Remember? The prophet Isaiah says that he's going to be named Emmanuel, God with us. And what we see is Jesus is continually engaging with humanity. He's not standing off on a mountain saying, okay, you guys come to me. Right? Paul says it this way at one point. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. That he's not waiting for humanity to get good enough. He's saying, okay, let me just engage with where you're at. Right? Let me just step right into your house. Imagine him showing up on your doorknob and door knocking and saying, okay, I'm here to visit you. Like, you'd probably get things ready, right? Like, oh, let's close that toilet seat, right? Like, let's, let's close these doors and all this. And here's Jesus simply sh- showing up, and he wants to be with the people. He, he doesn't want to stay off to the side and say, okay, you guys, now you can come to me. He's stepping right into the mess of humanity. And this is something that is crucial for us. And re- remember, Mark's original audience is Ro- Christian, Roman, or cr- Christian in the city of Rome, where ne- uh, Nero is the... the Caesar, the emperor, and he's so far off. Nobody can really get to him unless you're elite, unless you're part of the royal group, right? And here comes Jesus simply in the, in the northern part of Israel saying, let me just step right into this house. And I don't know about you, but it seems a little bit intimidating to think about Jesus walking into my house, but there's also something reassuring that he's not going to be this God or this deity, this king who's going to be way off in the distance. He's going to step right into the mess with me. He's going to see my dirty socks that I should have gotten in the laundry basket, but I was just too lazy to throw them in there, right? He's going to see all the stuff. And the same is true for us right now. He still does that today. And so he is wanting us to be, and there will be moments where, where Mark tells us and, and other gospel authors tell us that Jesus is up on the mountaintop to connect to the Father, but he doesn't stay there. He's always walking into the, into the houses or into the villages and stuff like that. And that's part of this rhythm, right? And then this next part where Jesus and his disciples get so busy, the crowd is so enamoring that he, they don't even have time to eat. Ever been there? Not often have I ever been there. But um, there's that moment where you just get so busy, you're like, okay. And if you're like, I remember one time I was at Denso, one, uh, the Toyota company I worked in, <coughs> and we literally went from meeting to meeting issue after issue, and it was a midnight. I worked second shift, and it was midnight, and I was like, oh, I should probably take my lunch, right? And I was like, yeah, that probably would be good. Uh, but there's times where you just get caught up in this, this reality, and so sometimes when you, when you get that busy, it's this reality of like, how do you actually schedule yourself so you can actually eat, right? And I think what Mark is trying to get us into that moment is just getting this understanding that Jesus has these rhythms in his ministry, in his life, where he's going to engage intently, really engage uh, at a high level, and then he's going to pull away, right? And we live in this, go- this culture that I think has two false gospels going on, and we kind of live in the middle of it. One gospel says work all you can and just make as much money as you possibly can. Go all in, seven days a week. You have to earn everything, and you just work and work and work, and whatever you can think about, you can accomplish it, and you just give it all, right? And then this other false gospel, in a sense, is just relax, you deserve to have a good time. You deserve to just kind of like chill out. And so you have these two, like in America, we have these two realities going on and here we are supposed to somehow figure this out. And I think this part of this reality, I just want to 
we've talked a lot about the overworking and stuff like that. And they are two false gospels that if you're not aware of it, it sounds really, really productive. And it sounds really, really good. The fastest growing, according to David Kinnaman in his book, The Digital Exiles, the, the fastest growing religion in America is the worship of self. Let me just read to you some of the commandments in, out of his book. We were talking about this in, um, in our leadership. One of the things we love about NTS Camp, uh, Heather and I love about it, is that it's not just for the kids, it's actually for the adult leaders as well. They take a couple hours in the morning and they pour into the adult leaders. And if you've done any ministry or you've been part of any church work, you know that you need some kind of like, investment as well. And so this was, Ariana shared this as well. Um, and so Roland and I were talking about it, and I was like, yep. So here's uh, part of this, pro- the, the, sacred command- the sacred commandments of self-worship. Your mind is the source of the standard of truth. So no matter what, trust yourself. Your emotions are authorized. So never question or let anyone else question your emotions. You are sovereign, so flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and your desires. You are supreme, so always act according to, you, to your chief end and glorify and enjoy yourself always. You are the standard of goodness, so don't let anyone oppress you with those antiquated notions of you're just a sinner who needs grace. You are the creator to, to use that limitless creative power to craft your identity and your purpose. And we can read these things, and it seems so alarming, right? But then all you have to do is watch people, and you're like, yeah, they're living this out. They li- like literally fall into these traps. And if we, if we just walk into this blindly, and we don't think about it as a, through the lens of Scripture, one of the things I love about teenagers is that they're just raw, and they just say things. And so, um, and sometimes appropriate, sometimes they're not, right? So you just listen to them. But I remember we were, I was talking with this kid at camp. He's uh, from the uh, Cypress Church in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And he was just like, man, I used to read scriptures and think that I had to understand it and like dissect my life through the scriptures, or the scriptures through my life, through my experience. And then one of his leaders was like, no, actually, you dissect your life through the lens of scripture. And he was just like, it's really hard. Like, how do you actually do that? And so we were talking about how to actually live this out. And sometimes it's like, how do you need an elephant? One bite at a time. You're, you can't just cackle the whole thing. You have to go one little bit after a thing. So I just want to walk through a couple of things that the, the sacred commandments of the self-worship com- contrasted with the ways of Jesus, right? So we see that Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, he'll say this, that if you want to find your life, you're going to lose your life. Deny yourself and pick up his cross. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. When all we do is we worship self and we think about ourselves and all this other stuff, man, it is a tense moment where you just have to work through things. And I just feel like we have to step into this, this idea, this reality, with an open mind of what Christ actually says. That your desires at times need to get put down. And that is harsh. I had a plan of never being a pastor. I was going to be a sound engineer and travel with, ba- with bands. It was going to be awesome. I was going to be the roadie life. Right? You know what I mean? And then somehow Jesus got a hold of me, and I was like, sure, I'll, I'll, be fo- I'll be a follower of Jesus. I'll do this for Jesus too, right? Like, I'll just travel around. And then it was like, you have a call to ministry? He's like, no, I don't. You have the other guy. Like, and time and time again, it's been this reality of, like, okay, let me put my desires down. 
Let me lay my, my, my agenda down to you, God. And every once in a while I do this where I just say, I don't schedule anything on certain days. And I said, Jesus, what do you want from me? What do you actually want me to do? And here's the, t- here's the moment that you kind of have to put into practice. At times, you have to actually stop and listen for him. Sometimes we get so busy with our own agenda, we don't hear him. But if we actually pay attention and you start seeing things in people the ways that Jesus actually would want you to, you'll see a lot more opportunities. Not for your own kingdom, but for his. And that's part of this process that we need to work through. And then Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah 17, says this about the heart. The heart is deceitful and cannot be trusted. It is beyond cure. When you hear, hear people say, trust yourself and just go, follow your gut, don't. It's deceitful. So how do you actually know this? We're, we're going to work through this as well. And the psalmist says this, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. To glorify, him, to glorify God, not ourselves. If all you do is you are here to kind of glorify yourself, you're missing out on what God has in store for you. And one of the moments of, in life that just kind of seemed to be a tense moment when I was a youth pastor was at a larger church, and we had this intergenerational department, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so we would meet, and we started working through. So Heather's boss was a children's pastor, and then I was the student ministries pastor, so middle school, high school, and then college age. And then our adult uh, pastor, his name was Dick Huffman. He was a great guy. He was an old retired teacher who became a uh, pastor late in, late in his age uh, and his, in his life. And so we were talking through these things, and he said one of the most difficult times for people in his ministry was once they hit retirement. What do we do? Because their identity was in their work. So engineers or marketing agencies or whatever, bankers. And so he was like, one of the biggest struggles that we're having is how do we actually get them to understand their identity is, is in Christ, not in their work. We would never put our identity in something other than Christ, though, right? We're not like that. And so I remember sitting there in this meeting and going, well, hey, I have hundreds of middle schoolers that need mentored and need discipled. And so we started having this inter, intergenerational mentoring. It was, we, we called it like two-way mentoring because old people didn't know the, how to use smartphones yet. Middle schoolers did. And I was like, hey, what if we actually took your retired people and said to the middle schoolers, can you help me understand my phone? How do I actually make a phone call on this thing, right? And so they started working with them. And then the people of, with wisdom and age and all that were starting to show people how to read the Bible and how to just navigate life. And this is one of those things that when you start looking to say, okay, I'm in retirement, but I don't have to live for just for myself. That's one of those things that you can say, okay, how do I actually seek his kingdom? And it's not that you have to wait till retirement to do that, but what if we started doing this together now and said, okay, let's get busy about the right things. Nowhere does Mark say that Jesus got too busy and it was bad. That these moments in life where you're going to be really, really busy for the right things are okay. But don't get busy about the stupid things. Get busy about his kingdom. And then take a rest. Because later on you'll see him. We'll just go up to a mountain and hang out. And be like, okay, now I'm good. Now let's go back down. It's this rhythm and this tension that we have to follow through. Then Mark tells us about these scribes. These Pharisees, these rulers of uh, religious leaders and stuff like that. They're showing up to investigate what Jesus is doing. They're constantly trying to figure out who Jesus is. And what authority he has. Where is he getting of this power? They can't deny the fact that he's performing miracles. But they just don't know what to do. 
And they're walking two to three days, or, or sometimes if they go around some area, it would be a five-day walk just to try to figure this out. When's the last time you walked two to three days anywhere? Yeah, not me, right? Like, I walked a ton this week. Like, I looked at my steps, and I was like, hey, well, I just walked nine miles. And that felt like a lot. The average, uh, average person, ancient person's walk was a 20-mile walk every day. And their purpose is to try to figure out who Jesus is and what authority he has. Because <clears throat> they can't figure out how in the world can you perform all these miracles, drive demons out. And right, remember, right before this passage, Jesus now appoints 12 apostles to say, hey, I'm going to commission you guys to go do the same thing as well. So now it's not just Jesus himself. Now he's getting a crowd, and now he's commissioning people. He's sending people out. And that's what really kind of pisses off the religious leaders. They're like, whoa, we don't know how to do Like, can you really do that? Do you have the authority to do that? Who told you you could do that? And so they try to figure this out. And they're up there legitimately trying to figure this out, trying to say, how do we do this? Where's all this coming from, right? And they throw an accusation out there. Like, being called a prince of demons is not a compliment, right? But notice how Jesus responds. They ask him a question with an accusation to it, and he responds by telling a parable. In that culture, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get them to understand, let's keep the conversation going. If he gives them a direct answer, it's basically saying, I don't really want to talk to you, we're done with the conversation. What if you and I actually responded in Jesus' way that anytime there's an accusation, we did something to keep, keep the conversation going? Instead of just, like, how do we actually do it now? We unfollow. We, we unfriend them, right? It's one of those moments where you're like, ooh, Jesus, the way you're modeling for us is challenging. That when accusations or like questions and stuff like that get thrown out there, we're actually going to keep things going for us. Because keeping the conversation is more important than me being right. That's a bit of a challenge for me. Because I like to be right, and I like to prove you wrong, if you are wrong, right? So, what Jesus does here is brilliant. To me, he's, he keeps the conversation going. It's one of those unwritten rules in culture that we just kind of read right over. But in that culture, what he does is he tells this parable, and it's this weird parable. Talking about plundering a house and tying up strong men and all this other stuff and then all that. So let's work through this parable really quickly. It won't be over, like overly depth because it's literally just a sentence. But he says this, that if you want to go into a strong man's house and plunder his house, you first have to tie up the strong man. So what's the house? Who's the strong man? And who's doing the plundering? Okay? So the house is the earth. It's this world. The strong man is the ruler of this earth, earth, which is, according to Scripture, is Satan. And what is Jesus doing? He's tying him up. He's binding him up, right? And in that binding up, he's restricting Satan's authority, his reach, and all that. And then he's going to plunder. So what's the plunder? You and I. Humanity. How is he tying things up? He's healing the sick. He's driving demons out. He's forgiving sins. Eventually, he's going to raise people from the dead. He's validating people like, in, in ways that nobody else should really would validate. And he's doing all of this. And the religious leaders are sitting back going, how in the world are you doing this? And why are you doing this? And he's constantly just trying to get them to understand. The purpose is bigger than yourself. It's bigger than you. 
and what you can think about. Because here's what Jesus knows of all this, that illnesses bind people up. They entangle. Demons entangle, sin entangles, and death entangles. And Jesus is reversing all of that so he can plunder the earth and take all the souls. Who wants to go? Who, he doesn't make us do this. He'll be like, okay, if you want to go, you can go. If not, hang out and do your own thing, right? And so that's what he's talking about here. And Beelzebub, it's this weird word in the Greek. It literally means Lord of the Flies. I don't know, like, we can dive into the weird mystic version of all this stuff, but that would just be weird. We're not going to. Uh, but he's really saying, like, they can't figure it out. And so it's like trying to nail down jello to a wall. That's what they're trying to do with Jesus. And if you've ever tried to nail jello down to a wall, it just doesn't really work. Anytime you see Jesus trying to, like, get categorized, he just doesn't fit. And so the, the two things, one of two things has to be true. Because you don't just throw this accusation out if Jesus is doing nice things. If he's helping old ladies cross the street, helping puppies and rescuing cats, which whatever that would be. I know. So, but somehow he's doing all these things and it's offending or questioning the religious leaders. Some of them are really trying to figure out if he's the Messiah. Some of them, I think, are really just trying to question what, the, like, what his motives are. But it leaves with one of two realities, right? Because what he's doing is living a lifestyle that is, that is shaking the status quo up. That either he truly is of God or his power is coming from somewhere other than God. And in their mindset, it wasn't that it was like God and Satan alone. In their mindset, they're seeing all these gods and religions and stuff like that. And Yahweh is considered in the Hebrew... El Elohim, the high God, and all these other gods find, fall underneath him. And their mindset, he's thinking, is, God, is he really coming from El Elohim, or is he coming from some other deity? Who just in their rankings has a little bit more power. And all of their, in their mindset, the ancient world, that the gods or the deities were tied to the soil of the ground. And so what they're trying to figure out is, how in the world is he doing this in all these different places? Because it's not just Galilee. He's in, he's in Jerusalem doing this. He's also in Tyre doing this. He's in other parts of the world, other parts of that region doing this. And so he, he, they're just trying to figure this out, and they can't understand that Jesus is actually from God. And so here's what he says in verse 28. Truly I tell you, the people will be forgiven of all sins, whatever blasphemes are. So we're going to get into that here in a minute. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but guilty of eternal sin. Because they are saying he had an impure spirit. So, let's dive into this part. When we, did our, when we read Mark for our banded group, this is one of the parts where we kind of nail down and just kind of work through uh, quite a bit because it's weird. You don't walk around saying, you blaspheme today. Like, no one really uses that language, right? So what does it mean? How do we actually understand it? Blaspheme really means in insulting or denying or hurling insults and stuff like that uh, or rejecting. How do you know if you're guilty of it? One of the things I've always said, uh, this is from other pastors, not myself, if you're worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, most likely you're not guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Most likely, if you like, if you, like, I think you're crossing that line. I remember students all the time, and every church I've ever worked in, I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're concerned about it, you probably haven't. It's this, this like, callousness towards Holy Spirit that you just feel like you can do whatever you want. I've seen pastors who are guilty of this, who that they think that their agenda is more important than the mission of God for whatever reason. 
And so part of that process you have to understand these Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 7 and talks about that if you've tasted or seen the goodness of, of the heaven and then you deny the move of the Holy Spirit and you live your life, then you won't actually find salvation again. It's a serious thing, but it's not something to like be so concerned about because uh, in the sense that you have these things, we'll talk about here in a minute, we have these things that kind of guard us in the sense to say, here, like, how do you avoid it? But once you cross that line, that's a serious matter. So let's talk through what is actually blaspheming and what does it look like to do this? So defaming or insulting, stuff like that. Mark will use this again, this same Greek word in Mark chapter 15 with the crucifixion where it says that Jesus is hanging on the cross and the crowds are walking by hurling insults at him. And that's the same word here. But what does he say? You can hurl all the insults you want at the Son of Man, but not at the Holy Spirit. Right? This same crowd of people 50 days later will listen to Peter stand up in the day of Pentecost and preach a sermon who says, repent and be baptized, and 3,000 of them will repent and be baptized. It's the same crowd, 50 days, and they're staying for two major holidays, you're not going back and forth and stuff like that. So highly likely that these are the same crowds and stuff like that. And here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11 and 12, which is the companion event of this. He walks through the whole blasphemy and stuff like that. He says this, if you acknowledge me in front of the humanity, then I will acknowledge you in front of heaven. If you deny me in front of humanity, then I will deny you in heaven. No pressure. Right? This is one of those things that's like, whoa. Jesus, can you like lighten this up a little bit? And he's, he's this is it. This is the way you do this, right? This is the way you pick up your cross and you follow me and all this. And then he gets into this, he tells about the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but then he gets into this parable in Luke chapter 12. And, he, and uh, these guys, these two brothers go to Jesus and say, hey, can you help us divide the inheritance? You don't tell my brother to divide the inheritance. And here's his response. He says, man, who made me arbitrator or judge between you two? He's basically not trying to get involved, right? But then he gets involved because now they've asked him in front of a crowd. And so the way he gets involved, he tells a parable because this is the way Jesus does it, right? And here's the parable. He says this, the ground of a certain wealthy man produced a harvest that was amazing. Like it was well beyond his expectation. And he had such a great harvest that he looked around and he said, what should I do with all this extra surplus of harvest? He goes, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns to store everything. And then I'm going to sit back, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Which is a line all the way back into Ecclesiastes, if you remember what wisdom is. And our wisdom stuff when we were working through that. And so that line right there brings us into this thing that like life is a mist, it's a vapor. Right? That word hevel in Hebrew, that line is everything's just temporary. But he thinks everything is permanent right? And he looks around and he recognizes, man, I have amazing harvest and look what I've done. I deserve to sit back and do nothing with it. Like, I'm just going to live off the rest of my life like this. And then Jesus says this in the parable that God shows up and says, you fool, this very night, I'm going to take your life from you. I'm going to demand your life. That seems really harsh. All because he wanted to build up bigger barns and to sit back and have a good time, right? One of the ways that Jesus is trying to get us to understand what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, is when you see a move of God or a blessing on your life and you think you've done it. And you think you deserve this. 
when you don't acknowledge or give credit to Jesus, when you don't sit back, and this is why I just sit back and I'm like, man, God, help us to always be humble and acknowledge who you are. And never think back, I deserve all that I have right now. I've worked for all this, which goes against everything in the American dream. It's one of those, it's one of those things that rubs here in our culture. Because yes, you have a great opportunity in America, but one of the things we need to keep in mind is we always have to give credit to the Holy Spirit. When you walk away from an accident, it wasn't a coincidence. It was somehow God protecting you. If you get a job that you're not qualified for, they didn't just like you. That was a move of God. And you need to give them credit. When you get a random check in the mail and you have no clue where you came from, if it does, make sure you tithe on it. But that was a move of God, right? So all those things you need to keep in mind, these little miracles along the way in life, we need to get in the practice of acknowledging God and giving him credit. The universe doesn't owe you crap. You need to keep that in mind. But God loves you enough to bless you. And in those blessings, acknowledge God and turn around and bless others. It would have been really great if Jesus would have given us the answer of what he was supposed to do with the extra grain, but he doesn't. We get to sit and wrestle in that. But what we need to understand is when it comes down to blessing and acknowledging God, that's what we need to do. Never get into the moment where you think you've controlled everything. The word here in, in the Hebrew for, for what the Spirit of God is, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it comes across the Spirit of God. And it's very segmented. It's never like this all-in-one type thing until the New Testament where he says the Holy Spirit. So in the Hebrew, it's called Ruach. And you see Ruach hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. And the waters are chaos, and the Ruach brings order to the chaos. And then you see Ruach again in Joseph's account, where Joseph in, Gen in the later part of Genesis is in, in prison. And two people have dreams they can't figure out, and the Ruach of God enables him to interpret the dreams. And then a couple of years later, whatever it says a long time, that Pharaoh has a dream, and they call Joseph up to the, from the prison, and they ask him, hey, can you interpret this dream? And he's like, I can't, but God can. Notice the difference here? It's not, yeah, I can do this because God's going to help me out. No, no, I can't, but God can. That's the, that's the way of doing this. And then the next time you see the Ruach of God showing up and enabling somebody is when they build the tabernacle, this guy named Beelzebub. Uh, he gets empowered by the Holy Spirit, by the Ruach of God, to put order to the tabernacle and to craft it and stuff like that. And then you see it in the prophets, and the prophets get empowered by the Holy Spirit to say, God is going to transform the hearts of humanity so that we actually don't want to keep sinning. And it's not just trying to follow the rules, but it actually transforms us so that we have a desire to follow God's way, right? And then if we go back into Mark chapter 3, Jesus has some weird words for his family. And it's great for us, but it's horrible for Mary and James and stuff like that. It seems so harsh that when his mom shows up, but his mom shows up with his brothers, because of what? They think he's out of his mind. He's doing his mission, and they're like, dude, you're crazy. Now, if my brother walked around and said, hey, I'm the son of God, and look at all these miracles, I, could, I would question him too, right? If my son started performing miracles and saying, I am the son of God, 
might be like, no, you're not. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's, I get it from a perspective. But they thought he's out of his mind, so they come to take control of him. And then, like, the crowds keep going. And they finally send somebody in, like, dude, can you get his attention? Like, we're out here waiting for him. And what does he say? Who are my mothers and brother? My, my, bro- my brother, mother and brothers. Only those who do the will of God. Right? Which is great for us and harsh for them to hear. I cannot imagine my sons saying that, especially about Heather. Me, they're like, mm, I'm going to get that one. But like, <laughs> about Heather? No. You know what I mean? Like, this is one of those things, it's like, man. But here's this, it makes it a great thing for us as a family. That the family that Jesus is starting is not about bloodlines. It's not about heritage and last names. It's about, are we actually going to join in with him and do his will? And part of that is we have to follow through with the idea of salvation. That we have to acknowledge that when we are saved, by, saved from our sins, that it's not anything we've actually earned. That we have to acknowledge that Jesus, you stepped into our mess that you weren't this distant God. It's the transcendence of God that he's so big and so vast that he can hold the universe in the palm of his hands like the psalmist says. But he also wants to know about the hairs on your head. He cares about what your day was like. And he's willing to get into your mess and deal with it. And because of that, we get to simply walk up by faith and we get to acknowledge him by faith. So today we're going to celebrate communion before we do that, I want to throw some pictures up here, and I'm going to give you about 90 seconds just to kind of reflect on these uh, images right here. Oh, sorry, the question's up here. Sorry. So you can choose the, the three slides you want to, or the, the question you want to go from, and just sit in silence and reflect. Jesus, we leave here today. My prayer is that we would walk out of here changed. that we would be a follower of Jesus who would passionately seek your kingdom, that we would be followers of Jesus who would look for things and people the way that you would look through things and people. And God, help us to start giving you credit. Help us to never get close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit but relying on the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, for some of us, it is a a challenge every day. God, would you help us to live for you? Would you help us to see where you're moving in our life? We love you, God. So you know we pray this. Amen. Well, as we leave today, if you want prayer for anything, I'll be in the back. Um, and as we leave, let's just keep this as a, uh, a place of worship and can, people can think through and pray through and all that. If you want to have conversations, let's have it in the hallway. But church, I want you to know this to be true, that God loves you and I love you. And as we follow him, we'll encounter the best he has to offer for us. So let's go and be the church. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Not here, but at a park. <laughs>